0: reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness learn more today at eomega.org/thrive
1: from spirituality and health magazine i'm rabbi rami and this is Essential conversations our guest today sue stewart smith is a psychiatrist avid gardener and author of the well-gardened mind the restorative power of nature the book is available in hardcover and print but also in audio where she reads the book to us And as you'll see, her voice is fantastic. And though I read the book in print, I want to hear her read it to me. Sue Stewart-Smith, welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: I'm very, very pleased to be with you today.
1: Well, I'm really happy to have you with us. I'm very interested in gardening. I watch my wife garden. (laughs) That's as close as I get to gardening. I water it sometimes. But you take it so much deeper. And I'm really, just really fascinated by what you wrote, and I, and I want to have you share it with all of our listeners. So let me start with this. Early in the book, you referenced the Garden of Eden. When you reference the Garden of Eden, now you're in my backyard. So in Genesis 2.15, the Bible says that the purpose of humanity is to nurture and protect the garden. People are, according to the author of that Bible passage, were created to be gardeners. So how did it happen that we lost this, I think, lofty goal and our sense of gardening sort of fell to what you call, or the way you put it, it was trivialized as a nice hobby. How did it go from the purpose of humanity to this hobby?
2: Oh my goodness, that's an awful lot of history in between, isn't it? so, so I, think, I think there's something very important around, um, you know, how, how we value nature and how we value the goodness in nature and the riches in nature, and that at some point we lost sight of, of, of our sort of need to protect and nurture that. And of course, this is more relevant than ever before today uh, with, the, with the climate crisis and loss of biodiversity. And I think what I found interesting in researching the book was sort of tracing different moments in history when people really got back in touch with that. So, for example, I write about Hildegard of Bingham who invented a new word, viriditas, to, to describe how the greening of the world and the greening of the human spirit were interlinked. The Benedictine monks, for example, too. And then right up to other times when we seem to rediscover these, our need for nature and our need to nurture nature. Very often this happens following natural disasters or wars or other kinds of crises.
1: So, you know, in, in, in Hebrew, and I can imagine listeners rolling their eyes, but bear with me with this. So in Hebrew... The word for earth is adama, and the word for human is adam. It's like the relationship between the word earth itself and the notion of earthling, that people are earthlings. And as a psychiatrist, I'm curious how you react to this notion, my idea, that the more cut off we are from the earth, the more cut off we are from ourselves, we we lose our own soul as we lose our connection to the soil.
2: I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think one can look at it through a spiritual lens. But Increasingly with, with modern science, we're, we're learning about it through a scientific lens as well. Um, and of course, this, this, this is a very ancient truth. That many people have been advocating that in, in the past. You know, ancient civilizations, for instance, under that connection. But it's only kind of more recently, living in a scientific age, that we're beginning to wake up to how embedded in nature we are, that we evolved in nature, and that various aspects of our our brain functioning, our immune functioning, our physiology, are are so closely tuned to the natural world that when we're deprived of it, you know, our health really deteriorates
1: too. So, you know, you say in the book, early on actually, in the book, that And I'm not quoting you, but I I think I'm paraphrasing you correctly. You say that cultivating a garden, an actual physical garden, is a way of cultivating a thriving mind. So is there evidence? I mean, this seems anecdotally right to me, but is there evidence as a scientist, do you find evidence that, you know, when you're digging in the dirt, when you're planting, when you're just even watching things grow, I'm fascinated by watching The bees come and pollinate the the flowers that my wife has around her vegetable garden. Does it change brain chemistry? Does it release something in us when we're doing this?
2: Yes, I think it undoubtedly does. But um, it's important not to construct too simplistic a model about it. I think, first of all, just one of the most important aspects of spending time in the garden, as well as gardening, is the feeling of being connected the web of life you know there's there's so much life around you um so so gardens for instance help counteract feelings of isolation which can be very important for people in hospitals for example at the same time you know i mentioned earlier about the science and the brain we know that spending time in green nature and it doesn't need to be very long and 20 or 30 minutes is enough to get these kind of effects studies have shown is that blood pressure reduces people's heart rates come down a bit, their salivary cortisol levels fall and return to you know, more, a more healthy state, the stress hormone cortisol, so we don't want too much of it. So we know that, that nature is influencing us on that level. And the reason for that is it is originally a survival advantage that if, if we're for our remote sort of prehistoric forebears to be in a flourishing landscape, if you felt relaxed, if you felt if you had endorphins being released and serotonin being released and maybe some dopamine because there was a lot of richness there to explore and seek out, then actually you were more likely to stay there. So the survival advantage is, is in this co- combined effect. You know, what's good for us in one way is also good for us in our internal kind of, um, I don't know what we want to call it, but internally, the brain, the immune system, our own kind of ecosystem, really.
1: It seemed to me that as I was reading the book, I mean, I've been meditating since I was 16 years old and I'm almost 70. So I've been meditating a long time. I'm not just a meditator. I read about it. I'm interested in the science. As I was reading this. It seemed to prove what I suspected was true, and that is gardening is a kind of meditation. I mean, you're saying it takes 20 to 30 minutes. Lots of meditation teachers say you should sit for 20 or 30 minutes. And the things you're describing, the dopamine release and all of that, seems to be a parallel to meditation. Not everyone can sit still. And for people who can't, gardening is a viable alternative,
2: Yes, I would agree with that. And I think I think the main thing, either in sitting or in being active in a garden, is to be fully present to what you're doing, which is something that I write about in the book, um, because we can get so overly task-focused or so distracted that we're not really connecting with, with nature around us. So I'm a great advocate for, for that kind of, Mindful focus. And I think when you establish that, yes, it, it is a meditative activity.
1: So, what if you live in an apartment and I mean, I have friends in New York City who, who rent uh, parts of public gardens and so they have a whole gardening community. But I, I have other friends who, you know, sort of live in the air in a high rise and they have no soil with which to connect. How, what about indoor gardening? Do you ever? Does that do the same thing or do you need to be outside?
2: Uh, it's not the same as being outside because obviously you're not getting some of the other benefits like, you know, the vitamin D from the from the sun. Mm-hmm. But actually there's some very compelling studies on indoor plants and there's no doubt that they help boost people's mood, help their concentration, reduce stress. Uh, and also just the simple act of caring for a living plant is itself very, very, an important part of the effect. We live in such a sort of material world in some ways and consumer-driven world. I feel we've lost sight of the central importance of care in human life. And and often it's sort of portrayed as something that might be a burden or a drain or depleting of your energies. But actually, when we care for something and we nurture something, the neurochemistry of care is all bound up with the endorphin system as well as the oxytocin um, system. So these are calming and mood-boosting neurochemicals and hormones that, that actually really can sustain us.
0: Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
1: Yeah, my, my, I work out of my home office. My home office is surrounded by, I mean, I've got plants everywhere. They live despite me. <laughs> because, I'm like, I try to take care of them. I go, oh, am I overwatering? I'm underwatering. But I absolutely have this sense of I'm their caretaker. They they need me. All right, the sun is coming through the windows. They don't need me for that. But they do need me for water. They do need me to repot them periodically. All that. And there there is something similar in my relationship to plants than that there is in my relationship to to dog to my dog. Another living being that that seems to need me so yeah I think I th- I th- I w- I'm suggesting to anyone who's listening who doesn't have a garden or and doesn't sort of overwhelm maybe by the idea of setting up a garden outside to start with plants on the inside just to, to, uh, to- yes
2: I, I agree I agree I think it's a very good way to start and also to I mean the most important thing is to make sure you've got plants that really will thrive. You know, in whatever the light levels and the temperature right. levels are, um, wherever you're living. But also, um, I like what you were saying about feeling—you know—the plants need you, and that's a very, very important part of the, the therapeutic effects of horticulture, and um, particularly for for people who 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 need to be looked after in other ways. That it gives them a way of feeling actually they're the caregiver. And and actually, for older people in life, it's it's a way, very effective way of continuing to to look to the future, of feeling you've got a sense of purpose and motivation. You know, your existence matters. Uh, you, you're keeping something alive. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's really well said. You know, I, I'm was reading your book, and every once in a while, I do this double take. You know, I'm just. Reading along, and then I go. I, I stop and I go. Wait, what did she say? <laughs> and and one of those moments came when you wrote, and this is a quote from the book, when you wrote, "Radical politics and food growing go together." I mean, you had you had my two favorite words, radical and food, in that sentence. So, radical politics and food growing go together. Can you expand on that for us? What what did you have in mind?
2: Well, partly the history that when you look through history that, um, for instance, guerrilla gardening sprang up in New York in the 1970s and a time of, you know, great social difficulty and and financial crisis. So it's a kind of grassroots response that brings people back to the earth and is empowering. And I, I think growing our own food, regardless of whether it's part of a kind of a radical act or not, is fundamentally empowering. It it, it allows people to realise that they can sustain themselves, feel less dependent. It's very difficult to grow enough food to completely sustain yourself, but just being able to grow some really good quality food that you enjoy and you can feed to your family or share with your friends is is enormously empowering and, and helps kind of overcome feelings of, depression or low self-esteem or inadequacy.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can I can attest to that also. And, and again, I'm not a gardener. I'm just reaping the benefits of being married to one. You know, one of the things that you say in the book that struck me as being apropos to the moment, this moment of, you know, pandemic, and you, you write, and this is another quote from the book, when life comes adrift, garden time can get you going. And I would I keep thinking about that. And I keep keep wishing that in one of these interviews with Dr. Fauci or, or someone else from you know the medical establishment, that someone would say, in addition to wash your hands, social distancing, wear masks, someone should say, plant a garden. <laughs> it just seems to me that 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 would be a tremendous antidote to the isolation and sometimes even desperation that. So many people are feeling at the moment. Do you, do you think your book is even more crucial now than it was when you were writing it?
2: Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that's been one of the extraordinary things about launching this book at this moment in time. Because, as you say, I, I wrote various things in the book. I sort of, I look back at something and think, "Oh my goodness, did I say that?" Because it seems so so enormously relevant now. Um, and I think you know, I think pe- many people instinctively found their way to gardening and have been sustaining themselves uh, through it, both, both, both certainly here and from what I've read in, in America as well. You know, sowing seeds, for instance, the simple act of sowing seeds, imme- immediately gives you uh, a sense of the future. You know, you, 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 know, you can begin when our lives, when, there is, when the future is so horribly uncertain, when you're beginning to plan a garden, it gives you that sense of something that will be coming on in two or three months' time and something to look forward to. And, you know, what most gardeners say is that when they get to the fall, the way they, they were, you know managing that and managing the cycle of life in the garden, which we, we have to get in tune with, nevertheless, you, you, can, you can actually look forward to spring. You can begin to plan as well. And I think that effect, when we're living in such uncertain times, is enormously stabilizing, let alone the effects, the other effects of, of you know, let's say natural beauty on us. Um, which I think is also very important.
1: You know, thinking about the COVID-19, thinking about all the lives that have been lost, you mention, and I may be mispronouncing this, but Michel de Montaigne. (laughs) It sounds very strange when I try to do a French accent. But the 16th century French essayist. And you have this great quote from him in the book. He writes, I want death to find me planting my cabbages, but careless of death and still more of my unfinished garden. His syntax is a little different. I'm going to read it again. I want death to find me planting my cabbages, but careless of death and still more of my unfinished garden. So what do you hear in in his words?
2: I hear all sorts of things, actually. But I, I think the thing... I, I want to focus on is, is a, a concept that comes later in that chapter, which is, um, generativity. And, and it links with, with, with what I was saying, um, before that the gardener is going forward, you know, and doing something creative and that we, we can't be too controlling or too attached to it either. And so I think there's some, something there about, you know, I'm so, he's so immersed in what he's doing with his cabbages death is not oppressing him that i think is, is a very helpful thing a, any time when we feel oppressed or troubled uh, you know you're focusing on creating life and you know nourishment as well and and you know it's a process it's not a product as well that that for me is what i take from it
1: yeah i think that's very important that this, this distinction between a process and a product that we are so product oriented but really, the reality itself is a process. We're just about out of time. I want to ask you to read to us. I mentioned that your book is available as an audiobook. And I'd like to end our conversation with listening to you read the close of the book. I found the last two paragraphs, I mean, they were very comforting. They were, they were satisfying somehow. And we're going to let that be the last word of our conversation. So it's the closing two paragraphs of the well-garden mind, a restorative, the restorative power of nature.
2: In this era of virtual worlds and fake facts, the garden brings us back to reality, not the kind of reality that is known and predictable, for the garden always surprises us, and in it we can experience a different kind of knowing, one that is sensory and physical, and which stimulates the emotional, spiritual, and cognitive aspects of our being. Gardening is, in this sense, simultaneously ancient and modern. Ancient because of the evolutionary fit between brain and nature, and also ancient as a way of life that lies between foraging and farming, that expresses our deeply inscribed need to attach to place. Modern because the garden is intrinsically forward-looking and the gardener is always aiming for a better future. Cultivation works both ways. It is inward as well as outward. And tending a garden can become an attitude toward life in a world that is increasingly dominated by technology and consumption. Gardening puts us in a direct relationship with the reality of how life is generated and sustained, and how fragile and fleeting it can be. Now, more than ever, we need to remind ourselves that first and foremost, we are creatures of the earth.
1: Our guest today, Sue Stewart-Smith, is the author of The Well-Gardened Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature. You can learn more about her work on her website, suestewartsmith.com. Sue, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful insights into gardening and spirituality with us on Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was lovely.
1: Well, so did I. Thank you. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami, thanks for listening.